0: It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to I'ma Let You Finish listeners you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.comslash ImaLetU. That's betterhelp.comslash slash I'ma let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast.
1: What's up, everybody? I'ma let you finish with Court and Amy on the Pantheon Podcast Network. We're back at show number 95. What's up, Ames? Um,
0: not much. You?
1: Um, you know, life and good things like that. Oh, we have a guest today. Why don't you introduce our guest?
0: We have a guest today, author Michael Goldberg, who has written a book uh really, really fascinating and interesting book called Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey, who is one of these people. Well, we'll we'll talk about it, but you know his music. You might not know the name, and it's a fascinating story about success and punk rock and music, and uh, yeah, so we're going to talk to Michael about it.
1: Excellent, excellent, excellent. So it is finally decent weather in New York. Oh, my God. It's
0: gorgeous. We
1: have sun.
0: (laughs) We have sun, but it's not too hot, but it's not too cold. The allergies seem to have gone somewhere, which is nice, which is always good when the allergies go somewhere. Um, Yeah. And it was so windy that my mask flew off my hand, and I chased it down the street. (laughs) Like an idiot. No, it was hilarious. It was actually something out of like, it was ridiculous. I was like going, stop that mask. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
1: So the time people have been waiting for it has happened. Kendrick has dropped his first single in video. We're getting our first taste of this new album that's coming. What do you think?
0: I've listened to the song three times now. I will say, I will say this. It's called a heart part five. I will say this. I think the video is getting a lot of buzz because what he does in the video is he incorporates a deep fake. Um, By the way, it's the guys behind. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
1: They have have a company, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And where he morphs into OJ Simpson, uh, Jesse so Will Smith, Nipsey Hussle, and one more person. Who's the other person? I forget. Um, so it's kind of hard to listen to the song and watch the video at the same time, just because your eyes are, for obvious reasons, drawn to the to the artistry and the technique of the video. So I listen to the song itself. The the, I mean, he's a very powerful lyricist. Some of the some of the things I'm reading online, and you'll tell me, is that. They're not. People are not crazy that he f- sampled uh, Marvin Gaye's "I Want" oh, you so okay. blatantly.
2: Not okay. that is
0: that. There's no. It's just there, and that they wonder whether someone can be a great lyricist and like, do you have to be so serious now? Because he is a serious artist, but does he ever have fun? Is there anything about him that's fun? But th- I think that there's an aspect of him that's a little goofy. I think that you, think? you know.
1: Yeah, and I think that's Kung stuff. And I absolutely think that that's an unfair criticism of him. There's a lot of bullshit out there that's silly and dumb. If you want that, you know what I mean? There's such a fill of that. And I think he's an important artist and it's okay that somebody... Like, Nas was never known for being silly and fun. You know what I mean? So it's like... I, he reminds me of the vein of a real lyricist who comes out when he has something to say. I prefer you have something to say than it having to be light. And we don't know what else is on the album, right? So... No,
0: no, no. I I, I think what people are saying, and I 100%, I'd <laughs> rather hear somebody talking about somebody than somebody mumbling. But what they're saying is... You know, can you be considered a great hip-hop artist and not Mm -hmm. have something, capital S, to say? And, I mean, I would say that someone like Vince Staples and Pusha T fits that bill, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not breaking new ground in what they have to say, but they're great artists. But, I look, Kendrick is always someone we've talked about that you have to pay attention to him. Absolutely. You have to pay attention to him. The song is number one on Rap Caviar this week, which is an indication. It'll be interesting to see if kids, if the kids, the kids, anybody under the age of 40 responds. That's Mm. what's going to be interesting. because I believe uh, they
1: will. Um, I believe they will. Yeah, it'll be
0: interesting. I mean, because there are other there are other artists out right now who are making good hip hop records. uh, Very Mm -hmm. different artists than him, Um, but it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what the next single is. You know, isn't
1: it? It's kind of exciting to me that it's like great lyricists are back. People really kind of coming with beats and and the type of hip hop that you know I like. You know, it's not. It's not the. yeah. I, to me, it's not the trendy shit that's like, you know, listen, and there's no, the trendy shit is great. So I say yeah. shit is just just the way I talk. It's great. But I also think you need the guys who come back, who give you albums, right? And Kendrick's an album artist to me. I just put his albums on and I just play them. Pusha, right. T, Pusha T is an album artist to me. I put on his right. album, I play it. Vince is an Like, they have singles that I've liked, but these are guys I just put on the album. Right. And then I'm doing whatever I'm doing and I let it play all the way through.
0: But so it's good. that is true but keep in mind that we're we have different you know the average yeah, I know just, I they know. don't care. They don't even know. I know <laughs> they, they just want to hear the, the hot song the hot song Except
1: for people who listen to him and and people who listen to the Vince staples of the oh, world no, So totally you are going to be true now You said that you told me that some of your students which I was very surprised in high school didn't really care about Kendrick Which really I thought yeah. really was a, a big part of his base So it'll be interesting to see and it's been
0: five years and five years mm-hmm. in a teenager's time is a hundred years Right. So it'll be, well, somebody who's not going anywhere, who is like (laughs) the moment, the moment is Harry Styles. And I really seriously think this, this man can do no wrong at this point. I really think that he can do no wrong. And I think that he has, you know, um he has found a sweet spot between appealing to like younger audiences and women, my age and men and everybody there's I, I, and I think a lot of it is because he has great songs. He seems to be enjoying himself, but he's not, but he can actually sing. He can actually perform and he's got a band. And I think people are really responding to the fact that it's like a band. It's like cohesive. So he's going to be going on tour, right?
1: he's going on tour and 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 to just to piggyback off of what you said it's almost like to some of these other artists out there young like pop and rock kids when you make really good music if you really and you have a clear vision for it all right people will show up I do right. believe if you if you stick to your to yourself and your pure self and what you want to do, it's like there are varying degrees of how they show up in success. Right. But the truth of the matter is what I appreciate about him is, yes, he's got the big budgets and the global situation. He could sail through and make these pop rock records. But he's making... This music, to me, what I'm hearing, sounds like an artist who's really, really coming into his own with the third oh, record. Because, yeah. no, you know, when you... You know how it is when you have the first two successful records, you really get that confidence. By when your third record is, when you start going into that, what did Barney say? That sweet spot of albums for an artist, right. well, where he's it's built really on coming each out. One, of
0: you. he's right. built on each a thing. I mean, the first album was a big success. The second album was a bigger. I mean, Watermelon Sugar was a huge single, and he's right. building and building and and he he seems. You know, limitless in a lot of ways. And I think mm-hmm. he's gonna, other, the only thing he's not tapping into yet, and I don't think, but I don't think it's his vein, is sort of a dance vibe. But that's not his vein. That's not his And vein you know what? We, we don't fine. need him to go there. Yeah. We don't need but him I, to go But I in think the that vein. he, I really think yeah. it's his to lose at this point. He's doing yep. 10 nights at the garden. Okay.
1: It's 10 nights at the garden, 10 nights at the forum in LA, uh, five nights in Austin. Five nights in Chicago.
0: In I Chicago. And something in Miami, right? And then Miami,
1: I believe, has five nights. Right. And those are the only US yeah. dates on the tour. Yeah. Unbelievable. Ten dates in at the garden, which you absolutely one thousand percent know are going to sell out of the it's day they go on sale people.
0: that's a hundred thousand people.
1: That will be in the, and you know there are people who are gonna be there every night. And first of all, he starts this tour off with a special show in New York at the USB arena, the arena he opened out on Long Island, where he's gonna play the entire album right. with his band. So listen, this kid is doing it really right. He's kind of exciting and and I'm into it.
0: I love it. Uh, and, I,
1: and I could not name a One Direction song, so it's really funny. Oh, I funny. could, though.
0: I could name the one, the one that was, "Um, b- Because You're Beautiful. Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, Courtney, I mean, come on. I mean, we were in our 40s mm-hmm. and 50s when my niece could name <laughs> a One Direction song.
1: I'm you. 39 right okay, now. Okay, in metric, so. in metric. All right, well,
0: speaking of old people, Janet's going to be going on tour. She is old. That's great. That's not a bad thing.
1: Janet is ageless. She is a legend and an icon, and she is ageless. She has no age. Okay. She is our Black goddess, our Black princess, and just watching those little... Lo- Here's what I loved about Janet.
0: But she is going on tour, right? Yeah,
1: she is going to go on tour, yes. Um, she originally had a tour called Black Diamond, which I believe is still going to be called, and it was original set of dates that had actually gone on sale, and... Re- COVID derailed that. And I believe it's going to be rerouted and reannounced and all of that. But when I was watching clips of her at the Derby, it was her return to stage after three years of not performing. It was just great. Does she dance as much as she used to? No, but I don't need 56-year-old Janet Jackson to try to be 26-year-old Janet Jackson still breaking it down. Let the dancers do the heavy lifting. She looked great. She sounded great. And it made me excited to see Janet again. I can always see Janet, and and I'm really... I, I would love to see her again. Have you ever seen her?
0: Yeah, I've seen her twice. Mm. I saw her the Black Cat, when she did Black Cat, that tour, whenever that the album on so
1: The first album, the Rhythm yeah, the Nation, first the first tour. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Tour. It
0: was great. And then mm-hmm. I saw... <laughs> <laughs> the tour where Tony, Tony, Tony opened up and blew her off the stage and she developed the, the velvet the t- row. And that was a great, no, she's great. But I mean, it was sort of funny to see Tony, Tony, Tony get up there and just tear the shit down and then she got rid of him <laughs> promptly thereafter. But no, listen, she's a great performer. She's a great, mm-hmm. she's absolutely a great performer. And I, and I think it's going to, um, um, do very well. Should we talk about Live Nation and then talk about what we're listening to? And then, um,
1: yeah, all right. Let me just tell you something, man. So, we see that Live Nation's revenues they just reported their quarterly revenues and they're up huge, huge, huge. And it really made me think about the price of concert tickets these days and wondering how anybody affords to take their kids to a bunch of concerts because, man, I know the tickets that. I'm still very fortunate that all my years of working in the music industry, people still offer me tickets to stuff. But I see the prices on those tickets and seeing how much money they're making, I'm like, it feels like there's some greed in here. Like every festival can't be hundreds of dollars. Tickets, it's just ridiculous. And they're making money hand over. I know. it's going to get worse
0: purely because of inflation, because of the yep. cost of gas. I mean, that right. alone, I mean, the the greed of Live Nation aside, and we all, yes, of course, but these artists, a lot of these artists are making up for three years of not being able to be on the road. The merch yep. people, there's a lot of people yep. that lost out on a lot of money, and now just the day-to-day expenses of touring are astronomical.
1: Yeah, it's a lot.
0: Astronomical. So, I mean- if if we're paying twice as much for milk as we did six months ago, you can only imagine what tickets are gonna are, are gonna be. They've already been overpriced to begin with, but now the excuse for the for the prices being up is almost like legitimate in a way, mm-hmm. you know?
1: <laughs> and look, we have a guest.
0: Oh my god, we, we just talked about the price of things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about the price of
2: things. Hi, Michael. Hi. How you Do doing? Can you can you in, hear me okay?
0: Yeah, in yeah. your honor, I'm wearing my dead Kennedy's too drunk to fuck t-shirt.
2: <laughs> and I'm I'm wearing my uh, my wicked game t-shirt.
0: Um, well, let me give you like the proper real introduction, and then I'm going to try to figure out whether we knew each other back in San Francisco because I'm thinking we did, but um, but you were like on a much higher level. You were like not crawling around on the floor looking for loose change at clubs like I was. All right. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's a whole nother story. All right, so this, we're going to introduce everybody. This is Michael Goldberg. He is a writer, he is an author, he was the uh, West Coast editor for Rolling Stone back in the day, he started the online magazine, one of the first online music magazines, which I actually wrote for you guys, um, Addicted to Noise, he was the VP of SonicNet, and he has now written this very, very cool, very emotional book called Wicked Game, The True Story of Guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. So thank you for joining us, Michael.
2: Sure. Well, I'm glad to be here
0: thank you for joining us so i for me reading i lived in san francisco from 76 to 1980 um and i was very you know knee deep in the punk scene and stuff like that so reading this book for me was very emotional because you talk about a lot of people that i knew that i was friends with a lot of people who are departed but and we talk about um James Wilsey, who I first met when he was Jimmy Avenger, because, right, everybody took the name of their band as their last name. So why don't you talk to us about your relationship with Jimmy and how why you decided to write this this book? And it, it really is a very emotional, for me, it was a very emotional book.
2: Well, um, I first met Jimmy in 1982. Um, I was writing a story about upcoming bands in San Francisco, for the San Francisco Examiner. And one of the bands that people kept telling me I should check out was Silvertone. And Silvertone was this band that was comprised of Chris Isaac, Jimmy Wilsey, a drummer named John Silvers, and uh, a bass player, um, Jamie... uh, uh, Oh... Anyway, Jamie was the bass player, and um, so uh, I went to the Berkeley Square, and I met Eric Jacobson there for the first time, and Eric um, was their co-manager and their producer, but I knew Eric because when I was a kid, there were all these um, records by the Love and Spoonful that were hits. They were all in the top 10, and, you know, do you believe in magic, and you know, summer in the city and just, these are great songs. And Eric had produced those songs. So he was like, in my mind uh, he was like a superstar producer and here he was now with this new band. So anyway, uh, me and Eric talked, he took me backstage. I met all the band, including Jimmy. And then after that, uh, I don't know, a year or two went by and then Silvertone were playing around the city and they were recording things and, um, then they made a first album. And so at that point I started writing stories about, about them and they were mostly about Chris Isaac because it switched from Silvertone to Chris Isaac. But along the way I talked to, would talk to Jimmy and I'd see him at, at gigs occasionally. And, um, and then, I interviewed him at length in 1987 for a Rolling Stone story about um, Chris Isaac, and then after they had Wicked Game, uh, I profiled Jimmy for Guitar Player, and and we started hanging out, and uh, and we became friends and. Uh, I had an indie record label briefly at that point, and he we, we were making a video in Santa Cruz, and he came along. We were in Santa Cruz for the day, and uh, then you know I would go to his house uh, or his apartment, and so that's kind of how I met him. And uh, he was he was a great guy. I mean, he was a he was a brilliant musician. I mean, really a brilliant musician, but he was a really nice, gracious guy. And he would just he would just do things for his friends. I mean, he gave my son guitar lessons for a while. Uh, when Penelope Houston, after the Avengers, when she wrote her first song, uh, post-Avengers, uh, you know, Jimmy invited her over to his place, and they made a demo of it. And he, he just spent a bunch of time. And this is when you know, he was busy with, with Silvertone and Chris Isaac, but he made the time to help, you know, Penelope out because they were friends. And that was just the kind of guy he was. And um, so anyway, um, then he got involved in drugs. And I kind of heard it through the grapevine because I never – when I was with him, I never really experienced that except at a certain point he started getting very flaky. <laughs> I mean – You would call, he wouldn't answer the phone. You would um, go to his place, knock on the door, no answer. Um, Anyway, Um, so anyway, you know, things happened in life. I mean, he goes his way, I go my way. And then um, in 2018, uh, I was working on a story actually about the lasting impact of the Mabue Gardens. And uh, the so I, ma-
0: the fab map.
2: Yep. Yep. And this was for a book about Dirk Dirksen that oh, was published by Last Gasp. It's a pretty cool book. But anyway, Courtney, um,
0: Dirk Dirksen was, was San Francisco's version of Hilly Crystal, except that he was a hundred percent meaner than Hilly, was, <laughs> <laughs> but in a nice way, but he was mean.
2: Well, he liked to insult everybody, yes. but he wasn't actually serious about no. it. And everyone kind of pretty quickly got in on that. And yeah. so then it was just kind of part of his shtick. Um, but uh, anyway, I so I reached out to Jimmy via Facebook Messenger in June of uh, 2018. And I was saying, Jimmy, it'd be great to get you on the phone briefly. I'd like to get some quotes for this story I'm doing, you know, about the Mabue. And there was just no response. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, time went by, eventually, like a month later or something, he popped up and said, hey, hey, I miss you, you know, yeah, we should talk. And I said, well, what's your phone number? And then there was nothing again. And uh, and then eventually he came back with um, something like he lost his phone and, you um, but it, you know, it was just it was just this flaky thing, and I figured, God, the guy's got to be back on drugs, and this is just this is weird. And then on Christmas Day, I read um, that he had died. There was yeah. a post, oh, wow. um, you know, in the Mabue Bar- Gardens chat on Facebook.
1: So, why the San Francisco punk scene? So, like, you were born in California, and that is, it just became something you were just fascinated from as a young person. You were like punk.
2: No, I mean, I. I actually, you know, I mean, I came of age at the tail end of the '60s. Um, mm. I was um, uh, like, I was in in 1967. I was 14. Mm. Okay, mm. so I so I was actually able to experience, a, you know, some great concerts and free things in the park and all that. Right. When punk, but when punk happened, um, you know, basically. 75, um, is when things, you know, the New York thing was, was happening. Mm -hmm. And I, and I subscribed to the village voice so I could read about what was happening in terms of the New York punk scene. And then the San Francisco scene started the very end of 76. And then 77 was, um, you know, was when it, it really came into its own and the whole Mabue scene happened and the really great San Francisco bands were, were playing, um, Avengers and the mutants and um, the offs. you know the, the nuns the crime, the offs, yeah. the, I mean the deals um, there were just a lot of great bands. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, so I, you know, I mean, first time I heard the sex pistols, um, you know, anarchy in the UK, I mean, I flipped, it was like, it was just great. And, and, you know, sort of people who were a little older experienced, the groups like the sex pistols and then the Ram- well, the Ramones actually before the sex pistols, of course, and the whole New York scene, people ex- like, you know, Richard hell and television and people, um, who were around my age, they experienced it in one of two ways. Either they loved it or they hated it.
0: Well, and I know, loved
2: it. Well, you know, you t- know?
0: D- were you, did you, I, were, did you see the Pistols show? Were you at that show? The one yeah. show? Yeah, oh, yeah, I was there. Yeah, me too. Um, I was very i was, not very young, but I was like 18 or 19, but I remember so vividly the first time I heard the pistols was on K San with Johnny Walker playing them on Ksan, and it was it was revolutionary to play that on mainstream, mainstream uh, radio in San Francisco.:
2: Oh yeah. yeah you know, and, was- and Ksan, which was the station, had real problems because I mean, they embraced punk early on. And their listeners did not embrace it. Right. And so it, that became, you know, problematic for that, for that radio station. But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so, um, but, but, you know, we sort of are jumping around. But I just wanted to finish saying about why I actually wrote this book. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I read, you know, like I say, I read on Facebook, you know, Jimmy had died. I was shocked. He was 61 years old. Yeah, I mean, he should have lived for another you know, 20 years at the minimum, uh, but he didn't. He's dead. And so then I'm waiting for an obit to show up in the San Francisco Chronicle. Here's a guy who was, he was really one of the stars of the punk scene. He was in one of the best San Francisco punk bands, and not just San Francisco punk bands. I mean, both Lenny Kay of, you know, Patti Smith Group and Greel Marcus both think that you know, that the Avengers were, were one of the best punk bands, period. You know, certainly of the United I ag- States.
0: I agree 100% on that.
2: Yeah. No, yeah. I, I do too. And so he was in that, the, the Avengers. And then he was responsible. He was, you know, with Chris Isaac, he was responsible for Wicked Game, a song that reached number six in the United States in the on the charts. But it was also, it was a top 10 hit in nine other countries. This was like an international hit. The song has been streamed just in the last three years, 200 million times, I mean, which is a lot. And I mean, this is a song that, and it's still being played on radio all over the world. So so this guy, he deserved an obituary in the San Francisco Chronicle, but there was nothing. And then, and I'm also looking in the LA Times because he lived in LA for like over 20 years and he died there. And there was nothing. And there was nothing in Billboard. So I contacted an editor that I'd stayed in touch with at Rolling Stone, where I had worked for a decade, you know, a number of years back. And they went, they said, yeah, write something up for us. So I wrote a 2000 word story about Jimmy. Well, when I finished that story, I just felt like there was a lot more to tell about Jimmy. And so then I wrote an 8,000 word story for a Australian magazine that I sometimes write for called rhythms. And when, when I was done with that, by that point, I was like, I want like, how did this happen? How did this guy become a drug addict? Like what were the, what was involved in his life? What, you know, what, and what are the factors that can lead someone to become a drug addict? And so I wanted to know that. And I wanted to just, there was just more to his life that I wanted to find out about. And then I, and I just felt like this was a guy who deserved to be remembered. And, you know, he was very frustrated by the fact that when Wicked Game became a big hit, it was all about Chris Isaac. But it was Jimmy who was actually responsible for that song becoming a hit. Because he wrote the introduction, the two-note guitar, you know, lick that, opens the song, and it's so memorable. I mean, you hear that, anyone hears that, and they, they, know. they know the song. Did he yeah. get but song it's also,
1: credit but, on that? But it's also video was king when that song came out. And what really took that song over the top was that black and white video yeah, yeah, yeah. with Helena Christensen. And So people remember that, that whole yeah. moment of Chris and Helena yeah. and the song and that guitar lick and the beach and the black and white, and it it just dominated the airwaves for months and months and months and months
2: yeah but it never would have gotten on airplay the airplay if not the, the this is what actually happened okay so Jimmy had written that 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 lick and all the guitar that's in the song and David Lynch wanted wanted some music for wild at heart right and and so he he put um, wicked game but the instrumental version of wicked game which is basically jimmy and uh, a looped rhythm section and into wild at heart and there was a dj at an atlanta top 40 station who saw the film and flipped over this instrumental and he went back twice more to see the film just to hear that instrumental when he bought the album the soundtrack album They didn't have the instrumental version on that. They had the version with Chris Isaac singing. And he loved that. And so then now he starts playing that, or not program, I'm sorry, not playing it, but programming it on the station. So because it got all this airplay on this Atlanta station because of Jimmy, Warner Brothers now issued it as a single which it hadn't done. I mean, Warner Brothers had written off the album it was on, had just written the whole thing off as as dead and gone. And so, um, you know, then it's a single. And so then um, actually there was Paola involved that got the thing played or got it started on a bunch of radio stations around the country. Once people heard it, they flipped for it. And so that got it moving up the charts and that made it something that where MTV could actually play a video because they wouldn't have played, ever played a video um, just from a song that nothing was happening with, with, with an album that Warner Brothers had, had written off. So right. Jimmy was really, really key to, to that whole thing happening. And um, he was bitter that he didn't get the recognition that he felt he deserved. Did he get um, songwriting? A, a, did he
0: get songwriting credit on that? No.
2: No, wow. he didn't know he didn't. Wow. No, so he got some um he got the royalties you get from sales of records because that was the you know, but he also got a fairly small percentage um compared to what um what Isaac got. And he'd agreed to that at a certain point years back because you who know? thought
1: that it, nobody knew that right. that was going to become Chris, a worldwide? Musicians
0: agree
2: to things. Well, you know? it was. It's it's also like you know when the guy who's the front person in your band and who's writing the most basically writing the songs says, "Okay, I want you know this is what I want. This is how it's going to be. Take it or leave it." You know. You know. I mean, he wasn't in a position where. You know, I mean, he could have, I guess, said "forget it" and quit the band, but he didn't want to do that. He liked he at that point. He really liked being in the in the band, you know, and he still liked working with Chris and everything. So, um,
1: but so anyway, I it, just
2: you know. Yeah. So did
1: you find anything surprising about him when that you didn't know when you were doing your research for this book?
2: Um. Well, I mean, there were a lot of things, but I didn't realize. He, he changed. And I mean, drugs, drugs can, re- you know, hard drugs can really have a negative impact on you. And um, he just, you know, by the end of his life, not even by the end of his life, but by, by the 2000s, um, he wasn't always, he wasn't always the, the, the guy, the gracious guy that he, he had been. I mean, his personality kind of changed. Um, and so Sometimes he could. I mean, he could, he could be that person he used to be sometimes, and then sometimes he wasn't. Um, And that was something that I just had never thought about, or you know, and but but in talking to a lot of people, um, you know, so that was that was one thing. That was kind of a you know that was really like a sad thing, and uh, the extent of his of his drug addiction. I mean, I had thought that um, I had basically just thought that after because I, what I had heard was um after he was um fired from Chris Isaac's band which was a period where that was because he was the drugs were, were so bad that um he couldn't remember what to play sometimes at rehearsals and I mean it was just they couldn't work together anymore um but what I understood was that he had gotten clean you know and and then I had actually talked to him um uh, in 1998, when he uh, he had put an instrumental band called The Mysteries together, I talked to him on the phone, and he sa- he sounded good, and um, so I just didn't, um, you know, I didn't think that he was had had continued to use drugs. Um, the San Francisco so,
0: scene you know. was—I vi- don't—I mean, the San Francisco scene was a very druggy scene. I mean, it was a very, I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, I was involved in it, you know, it was, if there was a lot of shit going on. He was not at that point. I mean, that surprised me too, but it was definitely, you know, you talk about people in the book and, you know, Will Shatter and Don Vinyl and all these people. I mean, it was a lot of stuff, not everybody, you know, uh, but there was definitely a lot of stuff going on, but we were all super young, you know, I mean, people don't, they don't realize how the movie ends until they're in that movie. You know what I mean? And then they right. realize, oh, nothing, nothing good is ever going to come out of that. I have to say one thing that really, it's so weird. Reading the book, the thing that really, um, and my dealings with Jimmy were very, very brief. I remember him from back in the day. And then I saw Chris Isaac play a bunch of times. And he remembered me and went, hey, how you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. Um, that he was bald blew my mind reading that he oh yeah sounds sounds shallow it sounds so shallow like here's this man battling addiction and 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 this that and the other but I was like because he was so cute and I know that sounds really awful but reading that I went holy crap like what that must have done to his sense of being and being on stage and suddenly having these little toupees and that just shocked me you know yeah
2: well that that was a surprise to me as well and the thing was that you know when jimmy was in the avengers i mean it was like on a certain level it was him and penelope i mean penelope was was kind of a sex symbol of the avengers and Jimmy was a sex symbol of the Avengers too, and yeah. they they almost looked alike at times. They went. There was a point where they both had their hair cut very very similar. And the bleach uh, blonde hair, the bleach blonde and stuff. Yeah. And the thing was, I mean, Jimmy at that point was really a rock star, and he was even though he wasn't the front person in that band. I mean, he in the in the within the small punk scene which it was a small scene but in that scene he was one of the people who was like a big deal and and so to go from that to becoming seen from the outside as a side guy and yeah he has to wear this you know has to wear a toupee all the time and i mean it was that had to have really had an impact on him, um, you know, and even though he was, you know, responsible for the sound of, you know, the Chris Isaac Silvertone thing, um, like I said, he didn't get the credit for that, um, you know, in the kind of way that, um, he would have liked, right. you know.
0: Um, so you just, I just want to, in terms of, so you've written this book, it's coming out when, when is the book, where can we find it? When's it coming out? And I, and i read that you're, that you're donating some of the proceeds to, uh, Jimmy's son.
2: Yeah. Son. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm donating 25% of my royalties to Waylon Wilsey, who's a teenager right now. And he doesn't have a father and he doesn't, I mean, his mother is still alive, but um I mean he basically was being raised by a guardian. Uh, you know he when Jimmy died, he was 15. And so until he turned 18, um, uh, a relative was um, his guardian um, and so so you know I just I just felt like um, it, right from the start, as soon as I started working on it as a book, I just thought I'm gonna give some some of the money to, to Waylon. And, and I thought 25% uh, was a good idea because that's a, that's a substantial amount. You know, that's, that seemed like, you know, that would be You know, that just seemed to me that that would be like, that would just feel right, you know? So yeah, so that's happening. And then the publisher who is Hozac books, H O Z A C. Well, it's actually records and books because they put out records and they put out books. Um, they're donating, um, a small percentage as well. Not as much as I am, but that's fine. Oh, that's um, nice. but they were, but, but they felt like, um, they wanted a, to participate in that as well. And the book is going to be out. I mean, the official publication date is June one, but the book, um, has been, you people have been able to pre-order it, um, almost, starting almost, I guess, a month or so ago. And the people who pre-order it, I mean, the, um, They expect to start mailing the books out to people on May 22nd. So, um, and the best place to get it is directly from the Hozak Records and Books website. And the reason for that is um, Waylon, myself, and the indie publisher all make a lot more money when the book is bought directly from the publisher because, you know, because when it's bought at a a bookstore or from Amazon, I mean, half is like, is, is gone, you know, right, right there.
1: Great. So, so we'll, we'll definitely, we'll make sure we put up, cause we're going to, we always put up links and we tweet out links to the yeah. books so we'll put out directly to, to the distributor. Cause it's true. Like everybody takes by the time they take all of those fees, you're left with almost nothing really.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, I certainly appreciate that. Oh, and yeah. um yeah. You know, well, so I just wanted Jimmy to be remembered. You know, yeah. that was that was. I mean, I there was all this stuff I was interested in finding out, and I felt like I really did find out a lot about both about addiction and about, you know, why Jimmy in particular, you know, was somebody who became addicted. But I I wanted him. But you know, this book also celebrates Jimmy, and it really I think it really makes the case for why he's important um, as a musician, as a guitar player. Um, and you know, and I wanted I wanted that to be, you know to exist so that if someone, you know wanted to know about this guy, they could find out about him, you know, that that it would really be there. And then beyond that, as I as I worked on this book, this book became almost like it's of course it's Jimmy's story, but through Jimmy's story, it's kind of the story of a lot of people who are not. The front guy in bands so that's mm-hmm. one story it's right. also the kind of the story of the dark side of the music business right um and then within it it's the story of the san francisco scene the story of the avengers I the know. story of of chris isaac and silvertone very
0: nostalgic i mean it just i mean i know it's like i i just remember seeing silvertone i was friends with chuck Cornel- Cornelis, so yeah. we used to call chris isaac we'd go "That's oh, that guy who thinks he's elvis let's go see him <laughs> And, and I remember John Silvers from the Dills, and he was yep. really cute. He thought he was Elvis. Everybody everybody thought they were Elvis in San Francisco, but <laughs> none of them actually were. But, um, Michael, we want to thank you so much for doing this. Um, and well, I really re- appreciate it. And, and it's really a wonderful – I mean, you know, my nostalgia kind of like, oh, I knew him, I knew her, aside, it is a really fascinating look because music is not just the stars and the front men and the front women. It is the people – kind of providing that and and he provided a soundtrack Jimmy he really literally provided a soundtrack and so I want to we both want to thank you Courtney and I want to thank you for coming but also for shining a light on someone who deserved to have a light shone on them you know
2: well thanks yeah no, I, I appreciate that and yeah that's how I feel
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> And thank you, guys. You know what it is. its is. I'm gonna let you finish. This is show 35. 35. 95. Jesus. It's like we've been doing this show so long. I don't even know. Show 95. Remember, guys. But we leave a rating. 35. Tell a friend. Follow us. We're on Facebook, and I'm gonna let you finish. We're on Twitter. Finish Imer. We fucking hate that name. Still. We're on. We're on. We're on, we're on Instagram. And I'm gonna let you finish. NY. We're on TikTok, and I'm gonna let you finish podcast. We're on iHeart, we're on Deezer, <laughs> we're on Apple, we're on we're <laughs> every we're, we're so on. annoying we're, we're like on. We're, we're like on. Bono we will come sing to you in a, a bomb shelter in, in a, a bomb war bomb shelter
0: oh my how god how did he
1: find those
0: how did he as fi- though you, as ha- though Ukrainians don't have enough to deal with he's in their like lives. I found
1: you guys and I'm I've come sing. to sing
0: right and they're like <laughs> great did you bring any guns because that's what we need <laughs> I mean
1: but he's like no but I brought song and a camera crew so it can go out internationally to the world to see that I sang <laughs> really Oh <laughs> Ladies God. and gentlemen, and that's it. Thank you guys.
0: Thank you, everyone. And Thank we you, Michael. Will
1: see ya next week. <laughs>